Hey guys, what's going on? It's Adam Menner from the VH Performance Podcast. Today we have an awesome guest, uh, Tim Karen. He's the co-owner of Allegiant. They're all, they currently have three facilities out on the West Coast in California. In just Tim's way, the way he thinks about training and understanding principles, designing blocks for both general populations and athletes is super unique and interesting. And he likes to go on a lot of tangents, which I think is really interesting in just terms of hearing his thought process behind things. So I highly encourage you guys to listen to this episode front to back. Also, if you guys do not know, next Wednesday, November 10th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time, we are hosting an online webinar through our company, The Business of Strength. And we're teaching you guys three key principles that you need for your business in order to help, again, streamline the systems that you guys have to also become more profitable, take your training ideologies and put them into truly a training system that all your coaches can adhere to. And then lastly, true genuine marketing tactics that work. And so you guys can find that in the show notes below. I highly encourage you guys to show up where we're going to give a lot of tangible information there. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to the VH Performance Podcast. Today we have a really awesome guest, someone who's transitioned from college and now into the private sector. So we have Tim Karen, co-owner of Allegiant out in California. Tim, thanks so much. Welcome to the pod. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Adam. Fired up to be here. Yeah, for sure. So just kind of give us a little bit about your background. I mean, obviously, you know, we've talked, you know, off air, but kind of what, what was your background and what led you to the private sector? Uh, well, so currently right now, I am co-owner and co-founder of a gym called Allegiant. We have two gyms and hopefully a third here on the way in 2022. Um, before that, I was a college strength conditioning coach. And I spent the bulk of my career working in college strength conditioning, uh, primarily with football. So my last stop was at Army West Point, uh, where one of your coaches there, Juwan, he yep. uh, was one of our athletes there. So the, the connection was formed there. But I was a head strength coach for football for three years there. Uh, prior to that, I was an associate strength coach, pretty much what they classify as top assistant at USC, University of Southern California. And then before that, I was an assistant strength coach at Georgia Tech. Got my master's degree from Springfield College, a New Englander by heart, and nice. going to get back there one day. And then uh, before that, went to a small state school in Massachusetts called Westfield State, uh, cool. where I got a degree in math and exercise science. Huh. Yeah. And I mean, but I think it's, you know, something from there when we talk to a lot of coaches as well is just the story of a strength coach, especially in the collegiate setting is uh, it's not linear by any means, you know? So like for most coaches who are listening to this, right. If they want to get into, let's say the college realm, what's actually important versus like what they think is important kind of as they uh, embark on that process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is that, uh, I think in terms of, the I think the biggest question is what people generally say and what they, I think, unintentionally mean. Yeah. So one of the things we always go through with, why are you coaching, right, blah, blah, blah. And it comes out in the wash of I want to help people, which I think is above all, above all else should be your precedent and why you become a coach. But when you start to go through what are your goals and aspirations as, as a performance coach or strength conditioning coach, like I want to work with elite level athletes. And the margin of difference with those people are nominal comparatively speaking to, you know, just gen pop or on the other end of like people in pain or people going through uh, pathologies. And it's like, well, if you want to help people, you got to ask yourself a bigger question of what is it that I want to help? Do I want to help elite athletes take a, like a certain percentage point up in whatever metric or KPI that you may be focused on? Or is it, Hey, I want to have the biggest net difference so if you're saying you just want to help people in a very open-ended, nondescript thing or giving a generic answer that you think someone may want to hear, 
conversely with like, Hey, I want to work with elite level populations because I'm a very competitive person and I want to push people to a level beyond what they're capable of doing with, without me. And I think it's both are noble and both are necessary, but I find a lot of coaches are, are, are looking at it from the perspective of saying one thing and meaning another thing. And if you want to go into the college sector, if you want to work with professional athletes, if you want to work in the private sector, work with elite level athletes, you know, you got to understand like, you know, that your skill set and your knowledge in a particular area is completely offset by potentially your people skills or your ability to sell your services at a high level. Mm-hmm. Because at that kind of like stratosphere, it goes into a whole nother set of, of human skills that you may be the best in the world in one particular domain, but it might not parlay the way you think it would. So you almost have to think about the other aspect. If I want to work with elite level populations and move the needle one percent point up and to the right, that you need to work on some other skill sets and selling yourself, marketing yourself, uh, managing yourself, you know, convincing other people that what you do is special and unique, and then be able to deliver on that is like probably more importantly. But it goes into this whole kind of setup and working with college athletics is, well, why do you want to work with a team sport in college or pro? And, you know, I think sometimes when you tell me, I just want to help people, like, that's not good enough. It's not even close to what you should be focusing on. And you're going to set up for a lot of disappointment unless you really lean in on what are the prerequisite skills and the abilities to get to that level. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we tell our coaches that a lot just in terms of I don't I don't think people think about that particular thing in terms of you have to make a choice in regards to also what you actually want to do. And then your skill set has to accompany that in the sense of like you could be the private. I'm just throwing things out, but you could be in the private sector and be like, you know, I just want to be a really good strength coach. Well, it's like, well, do you want to work with athletes, general pop? And when you get there, what do you want to do? Or like, what do you bring to the table? What's your ideology? You know, and I'd love to hear yours as we get going a little bit, but like, that's what allows you to build career capital. You build career capital off of your ideology and what you're, what you narrow in your focus at, you know, versus just being very, a huge generalist. And then that's when you get caught in the weeds of like the day to day, this is hard. I have to wake up because you have no central focus skill set that you can elaborate on. And, you know, when we have coaches on here like yourself, it's like they can talk for hours about their skills, their ideologies and all those things because they put so much sweat equity towards that versus, you know, a novice coach who's just been in the trenches a lot. But unless they have that prerequisite skill set that you're, you're talking about, it's kind of like that's where burnout begins to occur a little bit. Yeah, I find it's a cop out, honestly, like most people are scared to commit to one singular thing or look at it from a a very singular aspect. And they focus on a lot of different areas that essentially it's, you're improving, but you're not really improving net towards something that's going to bring value towards your career. And the same thing in fitness and health and whatnot, like so many people will focus in on things that are tangible and attainable and they're not really making any progress towards a direct correlate. And, you know, if I was going to work with someone and I say, okay, we want to accomplish this and they're not deliberate or specific enough, you know, my job is to you know, push them to that. What is the thing that's missing from a performance stance or from a health stance? And we need to hold you accountable to that. And the same thing with coaching, man. Like I want to work in a team setting with college athletes. Okay. Your people skills suck or yeah. your management skills suck or, you're going to have to go through the process of interning and volunteering because it's a lot of people applying. And I think the most thing that people really struggle with is, and I've been on the other end of this of like, 
your resume is not that cool. It's not that unique. It's trust me, it's a dime a dozen. I've seen everyone with master's degrees and multiple certifications and quote unquote working in different places. Like it doesn't really make much of a difference, relatively speaking, to the hundreds of other resumes that I get. So your your ability to get in there and network and make connections. And to be honest, like, you know, I know people kind of like poo-poo at the idea of interning, but like the truth is, I think it goes twofold, twofold. One from the director standpoint that I never hired someone cold. I don't, I never sent out an email blast or a call to someone, hey, do you got anyone? Because I always had a robust internship program and I always promote from within. So I hire and I, I develop people and I promote from that kind of context. So I have that incentive of like, you intern for me, there's a high probability if you do a good job to get a, a employment. But on the other end, it's like, I know what you're going to be like when the, the situation's tough, like, right? Like the mid-July, we've been going hard for eight weeks. We, we're, we're just dog tired. Everyone is really struggling from the athletes to the athletic trainers to the so associate and assistant strength coaches. I need to know if you're going to come into work focused and ready to work in that like Thursday morning on July 14th going into a preseason and we have to push. We've got two more weeks. We got to finish strong. And if I, if I don't know what you're like on some fundamental level and I make a low, le low level investment in terms of a volunteering, but I'm going to give you my time and education and respect for that. And on top of that, I'm going to see your most tangible assets come out of your work ethic, your reliability, your consistency, your people skills when chips are down. Can you manage all the other stuff? And the things that I think a lot of coaches often forget is that your problems in time between the start and the end of a session are not your athletes or clients problems. And you see people carry baggage to work so much. And it's, I think it's this, and I don't know, I don't want to call it entitlement, but I think it's this, I got into working, work, working in strength and conditioning because I enjoyed it. And by default, I feel like I have this impression that it's hundred percent my focus and people do what I want to do or people do what I think is right. And then you get a certain sense of like, well, that by extension needs to be, Hey, if I have something going on in my life, then I can carry that over and work and they're paying you for service or they're basing their development on your ability to focus and lock in, man. Like you see these things of like, why are you, what's the pretense of why you're here? I like to work out and I'm selfish with what I do. So therefore by extension, I don't really do a good job of compartmentalizing my job here and, and come sometimes it comes down to the director of <clears throat> looking at it, having good job description and good job responsibilities outlined. But I need to see that stuff in a larger sample. And then I develop you from that and I give progression in your career. But again, if you told me you want to work with a college athlete in a team setting, okay, and you're just sitting there accumulating certifications and not doing internships or networking, you're focusing on the wrong things. You're improving you're you're proving your skill set but it's going to make it harder and harder to edge into that when other people are out there doing these internships and sometimes it's lifetime like all right i'm 30 years old i decided to have an epiphany i want to work with team sports and athletes like okay great doesn't really make much of a difference to me and i'm not saying that there's this good old boy network or there's this dynamic of hey i need to trust you so to speak but there is this a level of like your skill set is unspecific to what i need you to do and I think sometimes so many coaches in all sectors just focus on things that are that appease their interest and appease their personal uh, their personal skill set, or quite frankly, it's just easy and attainable. Like, say, I focus on speed, or focus on movement, or focus on nutrition, and I just keep circling the wagon on the same concepts, and I just already understand it. But I 
I go to the same conferences that allude to the same thing. You're not making much improvements. You're not really straining yourself. You're not pushing yourself in the direction you do, but you do create this sense of, sense of heightened ability that's unspecific to what you want. And I, I, I get this like level when people send me a resume and they get like a, this certain sense of, an, I guess, entitlement of like, hey, I've worked a lot of places or I have a lot of certifications, a lot of education. But it's like, it, it might as well be all that in a whole completely different domain. It's unspecific to what I'm going to need you to do. And time and time again, get them in. Okay, here's our system. I need you to be able to understand and interpret and implement the system. And I'm not saying having more experience and knowledge isn't going to benefit you in some way. But on the other end, if there's a long, slow build, because either you're stubborn or you're set in your ways, or you have a really high self-opinion of what you do, it doesn't really apply. And it makes it more difficult. So it's from the level of like, hey, what do you want? What should you be doing to do that? And then going to work at that, you know, like have a focus and understand what you really want to do, but have the courage to set that goal and objective. And I just see so many people just the same thing in health and fitness. Like, Hey, I just kind of want to lose weight. Like how much do you want to lose body fat? Like, do you want to preserve lean muscle? Mm -hmm. Like, well, I want to look healthier. Like that's not good enough. You know, you're just going to, tomorrow that's going to change tomorrow. That's going to be different. The same thing with coaching. Like I want to work with team athletes. Okay. Well, what are you doing relative to that? You know, and I think these things are, are so important for any, any setting. This isn't specific to strength conditioning. Like if I wanted to be a lawyer working at a top law firm in New York City, or if I wanted to be a doctor working at the, or a surgeon working at the best surgical hospital in the world, you know, you have to do work, relatively speaking, to that goal. You know, if I wanted to be an astronaut and I'm not doing anything specific to being an astronaut, but I'm working hard. How bad do I really want it? Or how much am I lying to myself about, hey, I'm really working towards something? You're not really working towards something. You're just working hard. For there's sure. a huge fundamental difference. Yeah, I mean, and there's a, lot you, there's a lot you could unpack there. But I think, you know, it's funny when you said resume that, you know, reminded me of this was twofold. Is one, I had a resume one time that read, you know, I want to serve people which was unique because it caught my eye. I was like, well, the, he didn't lead with X, Y, Z certifications. But mm -hmm. number two, kind of what you're alluding to as well is like your core values as a human have to align with your career goal because that's the ultimate way you're going to make the best choices to kind of raise, you know, that ceiling, if you will. So for you, if someone, let's say I said, hey, I got three guys that want to come and they want to apply for you. Wearing both hats, let's say in the collegiate setting, what are things that you're looking for in your resume? Because not just for you, but you know we'll get people jobs because you have such an extensive network. And then in the private sector, which is way different, then we'll transition. What are things that you look for and how could people, you know, I should say, stand out from others? Uh, to be honest, Adam, I, I kind of look at it from the perspective of, of I, I couldn't tell you. You know, like I think there's a <laughs> dynamic of, like if someone applies for an internship with me and I go through the hours and the requirements, I'll take you. Um, and this isn't like, I'm not looking for free help. I'm just looking for right now. Are you committed to the idea? I don't care if you have a certification or degree in it, if you're willing to learn and you're willing to grow, that's great. And in terms of the other end, like, let's say I have like a, a higher up position. Let's say I'm hiring for assistant, right? Like, you know, that dynamic of a cold, a cold, resume with no background or context like someone recommends this adam you sent me a guy like i got a guy for you to be honest i probably wouldn't put much time into it because i think that's a reflection on me of mm -hmm. i don't have people in the queue and the system and I, I think like a lot of leaders in this industry really don't think long term about 
hey, inevitably, and you look at the health and fitness industry, not just looking at commercial or a private sector, you can look at this from the context of there is going to be a high churn rate for coaches. This is inevitable. Like there's going to be on average probably 50% turnover on your staff every single year. These are just the averages. Hopefully you can beat that average, which I think if you have a great place to work and a great environment to grow and develop in that you can kind of change those numbers. But the reality is turnover is inevitable. So if you don't have a long-term prospectus on, Hey, I need new people here on a recurring basis. Not to say too, on the other end of firing people, just people leave organically, like they, they have to move or their wife gets a job somewhere else. Like there has to be this precedent of it's always next person up. So in terms of like a cold resume, like, Hey, like, are you willing to start off in the bottom and work your way up? No, good. Moving on. I don't care if you have a master's degree and several other criteria that is makes you exponentially value. In fact, your market value is completely offset. Yeah. Like we have an inflated sense of market value for a lot of people, relatively speaking to what, you know, the business, you know, the P and L side of this from like, we're not that profitable. So it's like, I'm going to pay someone six figures to do a job that I can do myself on my own. Like, let alone on the other end of like, all right, well, are you willing to grow and develop in this system? And no. Okay. Well, you're probably not worth six figures. Are you going to bring me six figures of our return on investment? Guaranteed. No way. Right. So like, you know, just because you've made six figures elsewhere or you have several other time vested into something else doesn't necessarily mean that's your market value. And I think on that level too, like, I, I think the biggest thing for me is like uh, just a blank resume with, you know, an amazing like criteria or all these other variables that just are eye catching and whether it's a great cover letter or, or whatever have you like it, the fundamental thing is my responsibility as a director and leader is to understand that inevitably we'll have turnover and transition. So I am constantly looking to develop people early on and develop them to move up within our system and just playing the law of averages here. And looking at it from the context of over the course of five years, and if I have on average eight coaches per facility, that all of those people will be somehow gone by the time that that time span goes. So my job now is to find the next eight off of that that transition. The same thing I did in college transition. Like, I mean, it was, you know, you can ask Juwan in terms of our time there. I felt like our staff was second to none. And I would look at this from the context of all those people I had pre-existing relationships. And it's not nepotism. It's definitely not. It's not preferential treatment. I just hired my friends. I hired really good quality strength conditioning coaches. And when you do that, their probability of leaving for better opportunities is exponentially higher. And they all went on to high-level roles, went to Nebraska, took a head strength coach position, went on to become the head strength coach and not only replaced me, but then North Carolina. Like all these people people that I directly hired were developed at some way point four. And I think that process is when someone leaves for a better opportunity, it's better presenting on me and then I can get new people in. But the real strength of my ability to develop people from a ground up level and move them up into either my role or a role beyond us is, is setting us up for the long play. You know, so if I had stayed at army for the last five years, you know, chances are I would have probably on average, you know, transition through 10 people right now, you know, losing about one to two people a year. And I think that dynamic is, is, has to be there. So resumes, yeah, it's all good. Send me it. But, you know, quite frankly, it probably is a reflection of me and my ability to develop people from there. So I'd rather see someone who's young, hungry, uh, humble, uh, reliable, consistent. Uh, and I'll call your references and I'll ask them like, Hey, are they, willing to do the hard stuff? Are they willing to push through when it gets really tiring or do they bail when it gets 
someone hard? Are they are a person that you can't rely on actually terms the point of, hey, there's going to be this moment where you're going to be dog tired and I'm going to hopefully set the example of a constantly continuing educating myself and then coming to work every single day and busting my ass. And then you have to follow suit. And for some people that's daunting and exhausting, but I see your true colors. Do you like to work out? I see so many coaches who hate working out or they don't yeah. do it. Like, why, why would you do that? I mean, that's the perk of the job. That's probably the best perk. Like you're working in some of the best facilities in the world. And like, you don't like to work. And I'm not saying you got to go crazy and get down to 3% body fat or squat 600. Like, but I am saying like, that should be your release. That should be your experimental time. That's the time you get in the sure. lab. That should be the time yeah. that, you know, you, you, you can get out there and, and kind of let loose and let it free, have good technique, be a great demonstrator. Like these are all reflections off of your constant working at this, you know, and, you know, I think that process for, you know, early on when, you know, I ask you to start transitioning to working with me is, you know, I'm going to give you responsibility based off of your, your ability to, to execute on that. And you're, I'm going to give you more and more responsibility by, you know, you handling uh, things and executing on that. And I just think that takes time and, uh, and it takes a long, slow build out to really do. No, it's true. And you know, something that you said that's really important is just the market value. A lot of coaches that we speak to, you know, whether it's through our consulting business, people who call, what have you, and it's just like, there may be a candidate that they feel is really good, but like you alluded to is that the infrastructure of your work environment and culture has to have the systems in place to be able to handle turnover. If you have, if you run this great facility, but this guy comes in and he may be qualified, he may work with people, have the certifications, but he's asking for 50, 60, 70 K it's, he may be a temporary solution, but it'll hurt your business in the long term because he didn't go through that feeder system process that you're talking about. And then the second thing that you said that's, you know, we do here, which is awesome, is that, you know, our internship is really a weeding out process is what it is. You come in, you have to train, you do all these different things. I want to see if you have what it takes, but also I want to be able to mold and fit you into our system because then, you know, once you go through there, it's very easy for me to say, Hey, we didn't work next on deck. Like you said, as opposed to I'm locked into this individual because of X, Y, and Z. So I think a lot of, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We we talk a lot about with our interns of, we're going to find out what you don't want to do just as much as we're going to find out what you do want to do. And I don't call it firing. I call it giving them an opportunity to leave and i've seen it i mean it's it's happened here it's happened in college like i will tell a person point blank that hey i don't think this is a great career choice for you like you don't love this you don't want to do this like you're not gonna yeah. become a rich person doing this like so right. get that out of your head but you right. will become you will become this the best version of yourself if you find what you love to do and you go out there and you give it your all and that's, I mean, that's all, I mean, we turned a hobby into a vocation. Like, I mean, that the idea that we can have a salary or a, a good enough compensation to support ourselves and potentially families from helping people exercise and get healthier or perform at a higher level is a new, new and novel concept. Like this isn't like a prerequisite for civilization society to function. Now, as we progress to the 21st century and looking at the, you know, the endemic of just metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease that, you know, being on the front end of this is going to be really important. Absolutely. But as a whole, you know, we're, we're taking something that we were passionate about that we like to do, whether we're in high school and college, or we had athletic background and some people help us and turn this into an opportunity to make a living in this. And I think the thing that's often forgotten is that you don't have to do this. Like, right. The, the world that will, 
will keep going if all of a sudden that the fitness industry just disappears, right? They'll still play college football if they fire all strength and conditioning coaches tomorrow. Yeah. You know, and I think that dynamic of like, in a sense, like you, no one forced you to be here. There wasn't like your father owned a base, uh, a bakery and like, you have to take over the reins. Like, this isn't like that dynamic at all. Like you chose to be here. And if you're miserable every day, if you're late, if you're showing up these like signs, if you just don't love it, like cut bait, move on. Like let's mm-hmm. let find, find that thing that you do want to get up for every morning at 4am. Like whatever that is, like, it doesn't matter. Just find that. I'm not saying that that's going to be the case, or maybe you're not going to be this person living to work or like you're going to work, you're going to work to live. And that's okay too. Like there's plenty of people working nine to five, 40 hour job, 40 hour week jobs and better business hours to be more available to their family or to be able to travel and do things. It's not strength and conditioning. You're a service-based industry. You're working around other people's schedules. You have to work year round and you have to work very hard in the time you have, because it's very saturated and very competitive because of that. So you really have to stick out and differentiate yourself. And you got to be, have a high stamina and high tolerance for, for people and not wanting to do something or people trying to find the easy way out or people being inundated with other information or other offers. And you need to have incredible fortitude to push through. And if you don't want to do it in your internship where you volunteer to do something based off this construct that you want to help, or you just like working out, stop, just stop. Like don't pursue the next 50 years of your life doing a job that you never wanted to do in the first place. Cause you didn't have to do it to begin with. Right. Go find that thing that you do want. Someone worked really hard for us before that we can afford to go get a degree and afford to you know, get gym memberships and to learn this stuff so we can have this opportunity to do something that we generally love and enjoy. And why would you waste one second doing something you're not passionate about for, for some sort of arbitrary reason of I like to work out by extension of that, I'll probably like to work out with other people, work other people out. Like it's not a one-to-one. Not a seamless transition, and you have to appreciate that long term wise. Yeah, and and you know it's funny. Mike Boyle said a quote because we had him on, you know, a little bit ago. But he was like, "You'll touch more people's lives in a year than most people do in their lifetime," and it's so true. Just like you said, is again your core values of do you really want this, and you'll begin to exude, and you'll see that in your work. And then also though, but like the industry is so new in the sense of you know we'll talk about a little bit because I know you got some goodies there, but. You can build systems, both training and business-wise, that help you as a private sector owner to gain a little bit more control and do that kind of stuff. But again, that's not going to work unless you're doing these things that we're talking about. You know. Yeah. And so, as we get going a little bit, you know, one thing that's cool we talked off air that I thought was really cool was your name, Allegiant, and how you're bringing that kind of college style to the private sector, which I thought was real badass. But kind of. Talk about how you capitalized on that and like what led you to your thought process. And then we'll get a little nitty gritty behind just like your training ideology and what have you. Well, I think the simple construct is where do athletes go when they stop playing? Right. Um, to my, my, both of my business partners were former athletes I had at USC. And the, the next step, the logical next step for them is what, right? Do they get, you know, try to stay in a group environment and do, you know, honestly subpar maybe potentially even dangerous training, um, whether the, whatever the commercial options are out there. Um, or on the other end, they get their own membership at a box gym and kind of go through the motions and spin their wheels and not really have really much of insight on what to do. Or if you come in there on a certain day and the equipment that you want isn't available. So even if you did have a plan, you really couldn't do that. So the thought is, okay, like those guys stop playing or any college athlete or high school athlete 
that they have an expectation of the standard that they expect from their training is training environment is to try to parlay that into an option that they can have post playing. And by extension of that, if it's the preferred method for former athletes who know the difference from a higher quality experience, then why not have that available for everybody and then show them the difference based off of what having skin in the game of, Hey, if we're not effective at our jobs from an execution standpoint, from a compliance standpoint, from just an efficacy standpoint, the difference for us is we get fired. We have skin in the game from the context that our backs are against the wall mm-hmm. from delivering and selling our programs every single year. And you can look at it from college and conditioning performance training in general, but there's, there's good and bad. There's always a spectrum, but as a whole, the average of that, I would take any day of the week over a pretty much 90% of all commercial fitness options, whether it's group exercise or box gym. And I think in the end, it's okay, well, that's a really good start point. It's a huge gap in high quality strength training in a group environment in the market. It's all cardiovascular centric or it's just really crappy implementation of exercises. Right. And, you know, let's start to parlay that. And then, you know, now as we've evolved, like, you know, really it's, it's this big dynamic of, okay, former athletes, people who have a higher, you know, whatever the early adopter uh, archetype is, but have, have this higher expectation from experience and training and what they're getting from value in their product are the focal point now. And we're proof of concept still always, and you've got to keep that mentality, but you know, that, that dynamic of going into five years and improving that there is a demand there and there is a direct need. And then going into the bigger, more fundamental thing of, because there's a lot of money vested in the health and fitness space. There's not a lot to show for it from a, a health profile for a Westernized country like America like we can look at this as, okay, this is our big opportunity to make a big dent in the universe to help this big problem off of, there's just not a lot of good options out there that are sustainable and focused on long-term health and holistic approach to training. For sure. And, you know, we talked again about that training system where I think that a lot of times in this industry, we talk about career capital and it's like trying to become the smartest in the room, whether that's biomechanics, anatomy, understanding data, what have you. Sure, proof of concept in terms of your training has to work. You have to get results by far. But I think for the most part, that credential is there for most coaches who look to start a training business in the sense of they're taking their certifications. They got a degree in it. Let's say they have some sweat equity and or paid equity. But it's like when you start to transition a little bit in terms of your training systems, you know, let's break that down on your end just because, you know, I thought what you said was really cool. And, you know, we talked about things that we're doing here and we changed as well. And now it's going great. But like, let's start from how actually training works in the sense of like, right, adults and athletes are the same in regards to stress, right? We know we have to strategically induce stress into these individuals, but like creating a true block of training for gen pop that works almost universally as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, so I would look at it of, I mean, systems are a sequence of things to get hopefully a repeatable outcome. Um, We work with dynamic multivariate environments with open systems of human beings that no matter what that we're saying that stress, you know, hopefully is going to get this and we get some sort of adaptation. But in reality, is all of that is really just this art aspect. And I think as you're building out a system, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a very misleading thing to focus on, on stuff that's not universally true. So I'd say above all else is focus on principles, you know, and it may be as simple as, 
hey, just go back to whatever governing body, whether it's NSCA or ACSM or NASM, you know, what are the foundational principles? Because principles are laws without context. That they're true in Varsity House, Allegiant, any college weight room we work with, any other gym around the world, it's principles right. of training are going to be universally true. So going back into it, said individuality, reversibility, looking at progressive overload, progression, critical drop-off, all these things that are absolutely true. They're going to be true no matter what or where we do it, with who we do it, needs to be the foundation. And then where the real secret sauce is, is being able to manipulate those principles in a unique and creative way. And there's variables that change the implementation of those principles, meaning that we have either a group or we have one-on-one, whether we have the right equipment or we don't, right? So if all I have is barbells, okay, how am I going to leverage barbells with external load as external load to accommodate those principles? And we sometimes do that in reverse, right? So if I look at it, uh, okay, well, I'm a powerlifting guy, squat, bench, and deadlift will cure cancer and solve everyone's problems that... I can look at that and say, well, I'm probably approaching that the wrong direction. I'm not saying squat, bench, and deadlift aren't really great exercises. I just skip the most fundamental step. Now, the better question is if I have gen pop or I have athletes, it doesn't really matter. It starts off with, can I go through these principles and what tools and what layout do I need to have to best apply those principles based off of what I'm looking for from a concept of, okay, I'm working with in a commercial environment. I'm trying to create this group-based strength training deal. Okay, well, from that context, I need this equipment. I need this layout. I need to train my staff and my coaches to be able to implement this program. So when I lay out a block, it's based off this universally accepted thing of we're going to have progressive overload. We're going to have progression. We're going to have individuality. We're going to have specific adaptation to impose demands. We're going to have reversibility. We're going to have critical drop-off all in place. And then as we go through this implementation of this program, each one of those principles would get exposed. We're going to get pushed to the threshold of how well can we apply that? So if we have new people come into a training block and it's based on a four-week sequence of progressive overload and they come in week three of that, how do we apply progressive overload in that? And that's going to be the big test. It's, it's not a matter of whether like, you know, I'm doing a certain exercise or a certain protocol or a certain style of periodization. It's a matter of can I apply these principles with all these different influences and these different micro adjustments that we have to make? You know, and one of the ones that we talk about all the time with our staff is how do we make sure we have high quality control? Like, I don't care about the weight. I really don't. And it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because a lot of times that's influenced by how much I can utilize different mechanical aspects to get more load on the bar. What I do care about is can they increase based off a predetermined standard of movement. Mm -hmm. So let's just say that my standard of movement is bringing your ischial tuberosity towards your lateral malleolus. Like, this just it. Like, I want as much knee flexion on your squat pattern as possible. Maybe that means a vertical torso. Maybe it means forward translation of your tibia. Maybe it means that we have certain tracking of that femur and that patella over that ankle joint, right? Like, whatever happens in between, right? But let's just say, simply put, I want as much knee flexion as possible where I bring your hip down to your ankle and whatever have you. And then off of that, okay, I want to see that whatever way we load that, whether it's body weight with a kettlebell goblet, with a barbell, that that person is doing that version of that exercise with the standard that we have with more weight over a certain period of time, a certain mesocycle that we may have than they would if we didn't do it. And we didn't alter or change the standard of movement. 
right? So aside from, hey, whatever biomechanical, uh, you know, hey, I have this belief in this system, right? Like I believe in these biomechanical things. All good, completely fine. That's your prerogative. That's your perspective. But the other end is, do you have progressive overload? Yes or no? And objectively, that is an important thing to say, be whether or not. And if you don't have that, I don't think your program's really effective. I don't think your system's really good because you're not basing it off of principles. You can talk to me, you, talk, you can blow my ears off with low bar back squat, butt back, you know, whatever style is going to be better. I, can, I don't really care. It doesn't really matter to me because if you're not progressively overload with keeping the same standard of movement, your, your program sucks. Like, and I'm just being clear and honest about that because you don't have that. And this is always going to be some sort of biomechanical thing that, you know, we need to adjust. And that's why coaches are there. They're not robots. You know, they're not just going up and down. They're not on leg pressing machines going point A to point B. They're doing dynamic movements with a lot of different variables, whether they have crappy mobility that day from not sleeping properly or went for a 20-mile run the day before or just I'm not motivated and incentivized to do this or they weren't properly screened and they, weren't, they were put into the wrong exercise selection. But the bottom line is if we don't have standards of movement and we don't have a means to push through these, for these certain things that are principle-based, we're going to really struggle to apply the program that we want and your system will suck to begin with. So getting this logical sequence of things is the same way we would approach a research design. It's, hey, do we have quality inputs to assess whether my hypothesis to get this specific outcome was true or not? And if my inputs are inconsistent, and my compliance on that is really poor, it doesn't really matter what your philosophy or your system is. Like you don't have really good controls or constraints on that system to be able to determine whether you have the right hypothesis or not. No, I agree. It's almost like trying to pick, it's like arguing which tool to use when you don't know what task you're trying to achieve. Yeah. You know, like you're just that bottom feeder. And so I think you even see where the industry is going a little bit. Let's just say different philosophies. You could say, I like Westside, I like PRI, I like the, whatever the case may be. That is fine, but those are still tools that you have to understand the governing principles of adaptation in humans. And I try to stress that to a lot of different coaches because one of the things that we see a lot of, you know, just on our end is we still work with high-level athletes. We're really lucky to do some stuff with some high-level pros. And it's like interventions are the last resort if that individual has experienced enough stress to show, you know, primary, secondary, and tertiary compensations. Like just because I walk in and I see somebody and I put them through a, you know, a standard of screening to show improvement, like you talked about. And it's like, if they, maybe one thing is off, but they can still perform the task at hand. They still adhere to the principles. It's like, why then do I have to go in and create a coach made solution and act like I'm the one who helped them, you, you know, versus okay. no, what does your program design look like? And this is why I love having this talk with you. Cause it's something that we stress here is you have to adhere to those first, you know, compliance, buy-in, understanding stress, understanding internal, external, all of those things before you even begin to talk about a tool, because like you said, you could never do those three primary lifts again and you'd have one of the best strength conditioning programs in the world. So I think, you know, so I think that's really important for people to understand, but like, let's get a little gritty here in terms of like, let's set up a eight week block. Right. And so you have your adults, they come in, do they do their eight week block? Do you program more so at a month at a time with a specific outcome that you're trying to achieve per that month or do things compound? So like if I wanted to join Allegiate in week three of month one, how, what does that look like? Well, one of our OKRs is three times a week for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that That'd we look nice, at. That'd be nice, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. Um, 
and I think the biggest limiting factor for general populations is 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 not what it's it's looking at it from compliance and consistency basis. I think most people have a very uh, inconsistent application of a program. Um, I mean, the whole pretense of class pass or the the idea of doing something where you just come every day, it doesn't really matter what you do and this massive drop off, right? Like people will take months off on end. So I think this like very slow, pragmatic approach of, okay, well, what is this, what is this stress and fitness fatigue response? So I would look at it from like an eight week program, a four week program, a 12 month program, really doesn't matter. We're gonna utilize undulating periodization and we're gonna to look to accomplish some sort of accumulation or volume based like stress or intensification of of intensity based stress in six and six throughout the course of the calendar year uh, so the dynamic is really going to be centered off a three-day total body strength training program push and pull so we accomplish structural balance looking at getting really really good value from what we're doing and then applying it in a very systematic way of altering volume and intensity so we constantly are driving adaptation positively and we're not just becoming like, I guess, locked in on one singular aspect. So we can look at the faults of other places like overly glycolytic or overly lactic oriented, right? They just, they lower their central governor. They don't really adapt anymore. Their CNS is fried because they're not really applying themselves high frequency, whatever, or overly aerobic or whatever other documents are out or, or focuses are out there. Like, you know, this idea of like, okay, well, consistency and compliance are going to be tested by biomechanical ability over a period of time, or we can look at it physiologically adapting that we need to have enough variation in that stress, but we need to have some rocks in there to kind of build that uh, assessment of that stress over there. So three-day total body, you know, so push, pull, hinge, and squat done in various planes and various vectors, and then building off of that by stretching out the program. So again, like Adam, you might start tomorrow which would be on week one of a current training block that we're in, it really doesn't matter. Your goal is to come three times a week for the rest of your life. And right. as I build that out, you know, but we're not working on timelines with general populations. We're not training for anything, you know, and I, I do appreciate and enjoy the, the verbiage off of like, you're not working out your training. It's not actually true. Like we we're working out for sure. Cause most of the people don't have anything specific they're training for. Right. Most people are just like, oh, it's close, and I like the people that go here. Great. I'm glad that you enjoy that, and we have that convenience factor, but the real test and merit of what we do and the reason why we'll be successful or won't is can we keep those people based off those variables off of like not getting hurt and then keeping them progressing in terms of actually getting better at something over the extended period of time we want to work with them. And in the back end, if we do work with athletes, yeah, it's a lot more timeline specific. So yeah, that might be considered training. But the other aspect of it is like, you know, again, are we applying these principles that we need to apply? So three-day total body strength training, undulating periodization, alternating between accumulation intensification, just generally trying to check boxes. So we at the end of the year that we're systematically better from a body compositional standpoint, from a muscle mass standpoint from a even biomechanic standpoint, like are we moving through a certain degree of freedom without pain and restriction and with actual threshold of force velocity or work. And then at the end, it's okay, apples to apples, we got a superior product because we can help you get better over a longer period of time and keep you incentivized and motivated to do it and not hurt you. For sure. So but like on a month over month basis, like obviously we have our training template, we have our principles, we're good to go. But like, 
could the exercises completely change the next month? So it's November. Does November look like December based upon a task or do you just change it manipulating the principles? Yeah. Uh, so I would say that goes back into a exercise selection based off a screen, you know, so, you know, if you have asymmetries, pain or restrictions or range of motion, you're higher risk in general. So doing movements with a higher potential for threshold or force. So back squat would have a higher potential for force than a goblet squat right. um, in terms of external load, uh, doing things for a threshold of velocity. So again, doing a barbell counter movement jump would have a higher, a higher potential for some sort of power output or things that go through a certain degree of CNS input, then would just be doing, I don't know, just simple hop in place. Um, and then the final aspect would be doing something along the lines of going longer durations. Like if I can run a marathon, which is an incredible biomechanical stressor, that has a lot more work done than, okay, I can do a stationary recumbent bike for 30 minutes, you know, and that, that thought process is, you know, thresholds of work, velocity and force, are going to be predicated off of what your biomechanical ability is. So yeah. if you have asymmetry, pain, restrictions, range of motion, you know, and, and like, to be honest, if you don't have that stuff, like your focus on threshold is the wrong focal point, you know, that you're not going to get to these degrees of excursion without pain or some sort of compensation. So you're, you need to fix that stuff first. So I, but with the other aspect in terms of selecting exercises, you know, keeping this undulating motif, so to speak, you know, we're focusing on let's choose lower threshold exercises that still kind of pay homage to this push, pull, hinge and squat profile that we can load effectively while developing these other really more important variables of, OK, can you move through a complete degree of freedom of every single one of your joints without pain or restriction? Can you move multiple joints simultaneously without some, some sort of compensatory action? And then building on that, layering that, once we start to remove these risk factors or these, these profiles that are actually going to cause harm as opposed to that, then we can increase the threshold and we can choose exercises that, quite frankly, we can get more threshold. And I think the thing after that, it's less about, right, I'm going to do a back squat and a front squat. Can I choose exercises that allow me to keep my standard of movement in place? Right. So if it's like, hey, we're going to do singles and we're going to work up to everyone's got to squat 400 pounds. And I, I, I think it's crazy to think about. But it, if you really think about it, it happens a lot when you have hierarchical structures like you look at, you know, whatever CrossFit or powerlifting based gyms that you're pressuring people to push them into this box of load matters more so than the biomechanics. And they will compromise their movement or position to reach that load. People will be incredible compensators if you have these hierarchical structures, right? Like we see it all the time. That's why kipping pull-ups exist. You can't do a hundred unbroken pull-ups without doing some momentum-based swinging. Yeah. Why would you put that precedent in there? I don't know. Why not just do 10 good ones, right? Like I don't, we're not stressing the lat anymore or grip anymore. We're just teaching our body to use force magnifiers to create momentum that we can accomplish a just arbitrary task of a hundred pull-ups. Like I just don't get that. But and regardless, it's going to turn into this concept of the more they have or push into these thresholds off of like some sort of number or pushed in a hierarchy and the, the, the biggest alpha in the room is the person that can lift the most weight or get the fastest time that they're going to create these compensations. So where I really look at it is my exercise selections and the way I govern this and using bar speed and coaching it and prioritizing certain things like range of motion and tempo and hitting all of your sets and reps takes way higher precedence than anything. Like I could care less if someone ever back squats 500 in my gym 
What I do care care more about is Adam, you just signed up. You're doing this today. And we find that you have no restrictions, pain, pain or range or asymmetry. We're going to use this front squat exercise. It's going to be four sets of eight with a five Oh XO tempo. So five second down fast on the way back up. We're doing this weight week one. Next time you come in for this workout next week, I want you to do either five or 10 more kilos. And the week after that, five or 10 more kilos. And the week after that, five or 10 more kilos. And then by the way, next block, we're going to transition that into a heels elevated back squat. So it's like less about like this predetermined thing. It's more about, okay, can we maintain the standards of movement and prioritize the things that move the biggest needles, getting people to come back consistently, motivating them, incentivizing them. You know, and I think that that process of all of that, at least in the health and fitness industry, you know, working with general populations, it's low hanging fruit. And pushing people to a number, just an arbitrary number, like who says what's strong? Like I squatted 525. Like, am I strong? Am I a good athlete? No, I can barely jump 30 inches. I can barely break five seconds on a 40-yard dash. Like, yeah. I would be awful if I played high-level athletics in any capacity, but I can squat 500. Like, I, I think these things are just they're, – they're just unrelated correlates to something that we wanted to accomplish in the first place to validate what we're doing in there. So I think the, the reorganization of that is choosing exercises that we can be successful with over a longer period of time and progressively ramping that threshold based off a person's larger body of work. Can you train three days a week for multiple weeks on end? We could probably use higher threshold exercises like a snatch grip deadlift or looking at a uh, maybe even a low bar back squat to get more external load on that without breaking down. And I guess that's the whole point of what we look at. Yeah, for sure. But I also think it shows your ability as a coach to have great foresight because your programming in your coach's eye is going to run thin when you can't see that and you can't program for the long term. And that's where you see these issues come into play. And like, I'm sure you guys have your coaches meetings and it could be like, well, why would you use this exercise or how do you progress to the next sequence? So forth and so on. Because like we're saying is in the private sector, we have the luxury of people staying for a very long time, especially if your retention is really good based on other things. But it's like, if you have a person that stays with you for five years, your ability as a coach to program that individual out, no matter who they are, is more impressive than any six, eight, 12 week stint for a particular task that you're trying to achieve, which I think is, I think is what you're, you're saying. Yeah. Well, and to add to that, you work with athletes and I talk about this still, I'm blue in the face. Like what are KPIs? They're not getting better at certain lifts. Like I know that it's a, like, it's actually, can we run faster, jump higher or further? Or can we throw them something farther? Right. And I look at these like basic rudimentary skills. Are we making net improvement or are we not? Are 20 times or 40 times getting better? Are we jumping higher? Are we jumping further? And can we throw a med ball? Like the number one correlate I found working with college football was a backwards overhead med ball throw for distance. Mm -hmm. And above all else, I've seen people jump 40 inches, suck at football. I've seen people break four, five, 40, suck at football. But the one thing I never saw was someone who could throw a med ball, a 10-pound med ball or five-kilo med ball over 70 feet and be bad at football. Like 100% first-round draft pick across the board. Hmm. And what are the things that move the – aside from that individual single correlate, right, that causation correlation. But the things that actually make those things improve are not direct singular numbers of a certain lift. No, It's an aggregate not. of everything, right? Yep. Like. You know, sprint mechanics, like, again, I mentioned it before. Like, if you saw me run, like, man, for as strong as you are relative to your body mass, you should be able to hold acceleration positions longer. It's not a strength problem. It's a biomechanics problem. It's a coordination problem. 
it's a balance problem. It's probably a velocity problem. So if we look at that, if I want to improve my 40, it's probably a, hey, I probably need to focus less on singular numbers in the weight room and more other, on other higher, more important factors. But I think that dynamic of, okay, we can separate from just ability that we want or acumen and certain things that we want in the weight room to higher level correlates or KPIs that hold you honest and accountable. And you see this every year with college strength conditioning. We don't see net improvement off of these certain metrics. And we kind of create like what, you know, I think bad research would look at it as like, oh, it's just noisy data. Omit that. That doesn't really matter. It doesn't correlate to what we want. Like, ah, whatever. He's not a good weight room guy. He doesn't care. Like, no, like you just focus on the wrong things. Like, and the same thing over the course of four years, we're working with army. I never cared about certain numbers in the weight room. What I cared about are we making net improvements? Cause the first thing I was told is, Hey, we need to keep our guys on the field so they can't get hurt. And we need to make our team faster. Like that's the only two objectives I really had. So if I look at that, okay, from a resiliency standpoint, okay, what are the things that matter towards that mobility, flexibility, coordination, balance proprioception right and it's not getting like foo-foo and like let's get the bosu balls out it's looking at it like what are the things that allow my joints to articulate and move without any any problems or restrictions through these multi-joint integrated movement patterns like running jumping bounding shuffling etc etc and then on the other level is how do i express more velocity in these certain movement patterns without breaking down and getting hurt and i think that is the tell it's do we know what our actual objective is to win games or not based off of what the criteria is that create success? And then we reverse engineer every exercise or every protocol or every method that we potentially do. And if it means, yeah, I need to get our guys stronger, do it by all means. But that's a small fraction of the equation. I think sometimes we myopically focus on that and we validate our success of that because it's easier to quantify. It's easier sure. to manipulate. It's easier to go, ah, you know, kind of above parallel and squat or, Eh, you know, if you just lower that bar down your back and you push your butt way back, you know, we can get a little bit more weight on that, but then it doesn't correlate to improved speed or import correlate to reducing rate of injuries. And I think as a whole, you know, is in some hundred percent, a lot of the stuff's out of our control. And some people argue that there's no point in focusing on something you can't control, but if it's a thing that we're judged off of and you're not at least attempting to do it and you don't have principles in your training that you're just flying blind. And what's the point of view to begin with? Like, what's the difference? Like what gets someone who's a great motivator then, you know, like, I think that's the key that I think we try to focus on everywhere we've been and uh, objectively looking at what are the correlates and KPIs and the same thing with, you know, group based fitness. Like the, it, honestly, if I get someone a really big number in the weight room and the, in the fitness industry, like it won't mean net difference relatively speaking to the strength and robustness of how I can help and serve other people. And by doing so keep my business open, relatively speaking to getting someone in three times a week for 52 weeks a year. And sure. I think that's what's the end here. What's the outcome? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you said that, like, this is kind of a tangent on our end, but something that we did was we, we collect a lot of data here specifically with our athletes for adults. Like you said, it's more just in terms of objective, you know, how do they look those things? But you know, we found that athletes, this is why I love speed and prioritize it because out of 250 athletes, we found that individuals who ran 22 miles per hour, Every single one of them went on to play Division One sports. So okay. we knew like that was the factor, but then that didn't matter in terms of the other things that we were trying to improve. Like all those other things were a byproduct. It's your problem solving, right? To improve that one, you know, direct fact. But, you know, with the but adults. That point alone, but that point alone, I mean, there's a, so I would say college transitioning 
typically focus those on acceleration and backside mechanics. And in order to reach 22 miles per hour, you're going to have to get some frontside mechanics stuff. And you have to work some top end speed. Yep. And you see this all the time. It's, am I improving the first 10? And am I improving that and that alone? And that really comes down to, can you put more force on the ground? You get them really strong in the weight room and you just do short sprint stuff. And then all of a sudden they get up to a more upright position. They're getting better frontside lift and they look like crap, right? They can't, they're hovering, they're hoverboarding down, down to 40 to 60 meters, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so if you want to get to 22, mi- 22 miles per hour, yeah, you're going to have to have some great force and great buildup. But man, can you maintain that position when you get upright? Can you actually look like you can run 22 miles per hour or not? And I think that's the thing when we look at college transitioning, like you hear it so many times, like we don't work on top end mechanics to waste of time or, or top speed mechanics or front side mechanics to waste of time. If that's a correlate, then that's what matters and you have to do it. Like right. That's the bottom line. And how many times do guys get hurt because they can't run at a more upright position or right? sure. they can't decelerate out of that position? Like, you know, they overstride and the cast or whatever other variables that go with tearing a hamstring or adductor mangus. And it's like, yeah, because we don't do anything with it. And it's no wonder mm-hmm. why we have this triage of hamstring injuries every single year because we're not working top men mechanics. We're not working any front side lift. We're not doing these things. And that was the same conclusion we found in Hartney. It's like, yeah, I mean, our inside the box guys, yeah, we need to be able to, you know, accelerate and create some inertia. But on the backside, the backside guys or the outside the box guys, like, man, if we're not hitting top end mechanics, if we're not working front side mechanics, we're not going to be able to reach these speeds that we want to reach in a game or in just general. But on the other side, we're not going to have the tissue resiliency to be able to handle that when we do get to a competitive situation. And if you're not working it, you're not going to get better at it. Yeah, for sure. You know, and it kind of just, again, that's what falls underneath our ideology and speed as a whole is kind of a whole tangent, but it's just to your point though, is just creating, if you know, you're going to have standards, you have to have a way of measuring them consistently over time. So it's not just arbitrarily. I'm just creating random things to validate my opinion. It's like, I got this person strong. Well, were they a novice intermediate advanced? where did they come in from? What is their, all their background, their history, et cetera. It's like, no, this is what it is. So every single time when we put someone through that program, and it could be the same thing that you're talking about with the adults, when we put them through that program, it's looking at it objectively is what is this person missing and how do we get them to fit? So mm-hmm. with that, with you, you know, I'm genuinely asking, let's say you have diff- discrepancies, right? In individuals, obviously, even if they're gen pop, they still walk in, they want to train. If you have a novice intermediate or advanced and they come in, how, even if they're following a very similar program, how do you make adjustments for that individual? So let's say you and I are both squatting, right? I'm Susie. I'm 42. I just had two kids. My max back squat on a regular bar is 65 pounds. You, right? Tim, you squat 225, you're a male, you're 40 years old, but you're, just, you're following the same principles. How do you account for differences when people come into your program? Well, I mean, you go from a biomechanics standpoint, you can look at, all right, do they have restrictions based off of pain, which you need to find an exercise that doesn't have pain, or do they have the restrictions off of some sort of you know, biomechanic or biomotor ability? And then you need to find versions of that exercise that you can be successful with based off the predetermined standards. And then on the other end, it's, okay, well, how do we control the level of intensity based off of their output? And we like velocity-based training. We use GymAware. Yeah. Um, and you know, giving some sort of vector to work within or some sort of spectrum, like typically most of the year we're working you know, this 0.3 to 0.5 meters per second, more force output, like that kind of dynamic. Uh, but on the other end, it's, all right, do you hit your sets and reps and tempo? And so, you know, so person A 
they're only squatting 65, but they're maintaining perfect technique. They're hitting their tempo and they're hitting their sets and reps. For me, on the other end, I'm not hitting my tempo. So I turn my 5-0 XO tempo into a 2-0 XO tempo, too heavy. I'm not hitting my rep scheme within that tempo or within that range of motion or that predetermined biomechanical standard that, okay, too heavy. And then I can follow that up with, okay, is it too, if it's, it's too fast, it's too light. You know, so if I'm above 0.5 meters per second, you're not working nearly to the threshold you should be working. Let's ramp that intensity up. Let's start to add weight. So I think in terms of like decisions off of like day to day, you have these objectives that you're trying to hit from tempo, range of motion, execution of exercise, sets and reps. You have this other aspect of from a poor motivation or incentive, I and mean, we call it like literally Coach Jim aware, are you hitting these thresholds from a velocity standpoint? And that indicates if it's too heavy or too light. You know, if it's getting to a 0.27 back-to-back reps, like rack it, rack it. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you're like this biomechanical, technical failure savage that can hold these positions till like literally they, they break, right? You know, and this happens, but if it's too heavy and they have a super slow concentric, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get the third lift. On the other end, if it's like one meter per second, hey, it's just too light. You know, it's just, it's too light. Let's get you some actual threshold here. Let's put some actually intensity on this to get more value from it. So hopefully it gets closing that window based off of, I got that coach in there going through your checklist of, okay, do they get the technique the way we want it? Are they hitting their tempo, hitting their reps? Are they hitting their sets? And then the intensity is cooperated and supported by, Okay. Are we hitting a certain threshold of velocity? Yeah. You know, but, but what you're saying though, is these two people could be training like right next to each other at the same time though. So like, that's what I think is important to understand. Cause I know, you know, talking just about a business model and we'll transition a little bit, but it's like these two people, you're still making adjustments and they're training at the same hour, which is important to note. It's not like it's so individual where like a coach's attention can only be on that one specific person. Right. So like a one coach could be managing three or four people in a particular session. And based upon your predetermined standards, this is where you'll make your adjustments or your audibles, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, part of that, though, is from a business standpoint, you know, and we talked and you, you brought up a good point up a few weeks ago when we spoke. But why the small group model? Why is that something that all private sector coaches specifically, right? We're transitioning here is, is why should they think about those things? And why should that be the core focus of a private sector business? I mean, it's more economical, but I think the, the, usually the crux of private training is it runs into, it gets stale and boring regardless of how individualized it is. Um, So having that outlet for group in there, but on the other side of it, it's, you know, this, this, this dynamic of a bell curve setup of like, Hey, 80% of the people you're kind of hitting this, you know, low to moderate type of improvement. And for whole, like majority of the people, they don't really have any specific goals. Like they just kind of come in, like, I want to work out, kind of want to look better, kind of want to feel better. That's a pretty nebulous description of what they want. Why would you choose a very high end, high price premium experience of one-on-one where we can customize a lot of variables on a second to second basis versus a group dynamic and a more general outline based off of not having any really specific goals or objectives, you know, I think in that stance, but the other side of it too, Adam, like, I don't know if everyone should be thinking about doing group exercise if they don't have the gym set up and if they don't have the skill set to do it, like if they don't understand systems and logistics, 
you know, and just simple flow and ingress, egress and managing of a group. Yeah. They shouldn't do it. And I've seen For plenty sure. of P I've seen plenty of PTs and Kairos who tell me that they can do strength training programs and you get them with two people. It's like, this is chaos, man. Like this is awful. There's no real rhyme or reason to what you're doing and how you're doing it. Yeah. And like, I look at that, I'm like, yeah, don't do group exercise, man. Like this ain't for everybody. You're not right. that good at it. You're not good at coordinating your system to be able to do this. And that's okay too. Especially if you want to work with more niche groups, people in pain, people with pathology, people who have very high needs aren't best served in a group dynamic. 100%. And you need to be able to disassociate that. Like, yeah, like ideally economically, you'll be able to be more profitable if you can get more people in a given hour and you lower the actual, it's more economic for the customer as well. It's enough to pay as much per session. But on the other end, it's this I don't know, false narrative that, hey, even high, high needs people who have pathologies, pain, or looking at it from specific needs will be better in a group dynamic. It's not always the truth. And you can't all the time, all the time marry the two. So for no. me, it looks at it like my experience is working with group. I've worked in a team setting for multiple years on end. I've troubleshooted and worked through the process. I know how to set up a weight room. I know how to set up a staff. I know how to set up a program. Predominantly in a group dynamic, it just happens to be more economical and happens to be hopefully a little bit more sustainable for the long term because I can, in any given moment, if I'm a crappy conversational conversation, I can leverage the group to engage with and to do the 30 seconds. Hey, how's it going, man? Move on to the next person. And this whole other dynamic of, okay, we can use the social dynamic and group dynamic to propagate people to be motivated and supported in ways that we can, we can do as a largely with more people at a given time. But on the other end, you know, it's like, Hey, if I don't have the skill set and organization understanding of how to do that, probably should think twice about it. And then the other end, if I want to work with very specific populations, probably should really think about the group dynamic, maybe not the best choice. And you might need to really consider how you structure your gym. So if you have like a 10,000 square foot facility and you're really only good or really only do one-on-ones, maybe really consider your footprint. On the other end, if you're really only good with working with a very specific domain within fitness and strength conditioning, then you should probably really think about, hey, the size of your, your facility or all the stuff that you have in there. And then, then finally, like quite frankly, just group training is not for everyone, man. Like it's, it's not. It's not for every coach. and It's not for every user. And that's okay. And we have private training offering too. And we understand that. I think that's the dynamic organically. You have to come to that conclusion of, of if there are specific needs or not really highly developed skill set in that area. You know, the option there of having private training in conjunction with group training, you know, should be considered as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, maybe I was aggressive by saying, you know, it's hmm. the be all end all, but you know, we have private training here. We have different options as well, but I think the reason why I really like it, you know, and I think we're on the same page is just in the sense of because it stems from true training principles and ideologies, not that individual training does not. But when you talk about the health and fitness industry as a whole, and you talk about retention, having people come together, having a great experience and training for a common goal, I think is what will really help your business in the long term in terms of even only your coaches, your coaches being motivated to work with people, understanding the task in hand, understanding the confines of your program is why it can get to that point. You could be this individual amazing guru but if you're so specific and so niche at the end of the day you become the bottleneck in your own business because you're the only one administering that training session one-on-one -on -one. and you know with pts it's very hard for a pt to open up maybe multiple facilities and you know and you talked about it before off air but then i'll bring it to light here is you know you're you're looking to open up facility number three 
And I think that back to what we were originally saying is that is what's unbelievable about being a true coach and a business leader in the private sector is my training ideologies, my proof of concept shows that I can do this almost at scale. And I know coaches don't like that word, but it's the truth in terms of, you know, proof of concept. So I think that that's yeah. what's really important. But And I would expand on that too of I see this mistake a lot with either really big footprints or very small, very singular uh, footprints. And and what it does is says that I want to focus in this specific demographic, right? So if we have a 30,000 square foot facility and we want to work with high school athletes and hopefully college athletes as well, that we are setting up our room to accommodate the needs of athletes. So plenty of space to run, some uh, pretty expansive equipment that can handle larger groups at a given time, mm -hmm. which are all prerequisite, right? It's this, I don't think it's copycat, but it's, it's largely built off a system of what college strength conditioning, professional strength conditioning, you know, can do with their resources and their, their actual time. But in the other end, you know, there's down parts of that year. And what they do is circle back and try to do gen pop group training. Right. And like, okay, you should seamlessly transition. And when all the high school fall sports athletes go back to school in September, we can start to roll out adult group. And then that goes, maybe they work their ass off and get a bunch of people in there at a given time. And then it comes January again of like those fall sports athletes are going to start come trickling back in here. Hey, sorry, uh, sorry, 30 year old guys been coming in here three days a week, uh, Monday through Friday. We need this time reserved for high school athletes because our bread and butter. And then that high school or that guy goes, well, I'm never coming back here. I'm not the priority. And the right. same thing with a single place. It's like you have one rack and you have, you know, one set of dumbbells and then you're like, I can do six people in here. I got the space to do it, but you don't have enough equipment to, allocate to everyone to do a really effective program and it's we're locked in based off of this construct we set up our original business structure so i have to deal with that on the other end of a lot of professional athletes who i've had built-in relationships hit me up i'm like probably not gonna be that good for you man like i don't have anywhere to run right you have a small footprint and it's designed for group training and you know what the other big part of it is i'm not giving up my time slot for that person who's going to be here for the next 51 weeks just because you have a two-week thing that you want to come in here and do a really expansive high-level program and you respect me and you appreciate me that you want to pay me to come in here and train for these two weeks doesn't mean I have to give up my primary business. You're going to have to work around their schedule and you're going to have to work with the equipment that we have. And I'm telling you deliberately, it's going to be less than what I would be able to do if I have a weight room designed for you. And right. I think that dynamic from the group set up, like, hey, I'm going to do group-based training. You know, and what's so funny, we'll have like six racks in our primary weight room and we'll have private training trickled in throughout the day. And, you know, they don't fully understand or grasp the other construct of your business. They have enough disposable income to come in midday and pay for private training. And then every once in a while, I'll come up a couple of weeks or in like, hey, why do you have all these racks? Like, well, it's because we're group-based strength training. Like, that's our big focal point. Like, oh, right. I didn't even know. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's what we do. You know, like, yeah. It just so happens that we offer privates as well. And that's what you're interested in doing. Like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I was wondering why you have all these racks and all this equipment. Like, I only see me in here during like at 10 o'clock most days. Like, yeah, it's not the really primary part of our business. And I think as a whole, when we look at, you know, when businesses like, hey, I'd really like to get your insight in group-based training. Like, okay, you're going to get a whole new weight room. Like, are you going to redesign your whole entire weight room? Are you going to redesign your whole schedule? Yeah. Are you going to prioritize the groups that are going to come in? Or are you going to commit to it? And like, I'm not saying that there's like, hopefully a way to kind of have really good quality output and everything. And I think we do a really good job for the athletes and the one-on-ones that we have. I just understand that the way we design our weight room, the third location is coming up. It started off with the pretense of 
we're going to do group based strength training with group sizes up to 18. And I need to accommodate that first and foremost from a scheduling perspective, a staffing perspective and a, and a gym layout perspective. Yeah, for sure. You know, and it's funny, this is kind of why with our, you know, our one space, we have two facilities, but the one here in Orangeburg is kind of that big footprint facility. We understand that. And that's why it takes a lot of manpower to get that thing going a little bit. But the reason why I love speed so much is because we have this huge turf, but we have these six racks on one side, another three racks on the other side. But in a given hour, series of hours, we can simultaneously have adults training in our racks or group training model. But speed, I just need the turf. I don't need the racks. I don't need any of that external equipment. So I can have 20 athletes doing a speed session and then a lot of adults, almost 20, 30 adults training simultaneously in the span of three to four hours. And so that's why I think going that route for us, you know, we talk about aligning your training ideology and your business model are super important, but just also just being economically effective with the space that you have. And like you said, that's a great point. Most coaches don't think about that. That is, again, it's like business principles, right? Do my training principles almost align with my business principles? Because if they don't, that is where you're going to run into a lot of issues, I think. Yeah. If you spend more than you make, you have a crappy business. That's <laughs> bottom line. If you're not making any net improvement to KPIs and you're not really making, you're not really doing what you should be doing. You're focusing sure. on the wrong things. Even though you have a, a really cool Instagram account, but yeah, I appreciate that, man. <laughs> so, you know, you know, this is something that we like to do. This is a sports Q and A, something rapid, right? Just to give you some insights, or maybe just a fun story that you have to share with us. So we'll go relatively quick here. Um, but in your career, what, who's the most athletic individual you've ever trained? Uh, Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson. What made him so athletic? He was six foot seven. He could he had two percent, two point seven percent body fat. He could jump forty four inches. He was two seventy. He could bench four or five, clean three fifty, and then back squat five hundred. He actually had eleven foot broad too. Was, <laughs> yeah, like I mean, ever, yeah, we had Calvin Johnson at Georgia Tech at the same time, and Calvin was. I, I mean, you want to talk about an absolute freak, but I would, I, I would actually say Mike Johnson was a better athlete. I mean, Calvin was a way better football player, but. Sure. We had plenty of them. I mean, Tyron Smith is pretty explosive. We had Nick Perry at SC. Like, we had some pretty unbelievable athletes. Place I worked at. Yeah, that's sick. That's cool. So, smartest person or mentor you've ever worked with? James Laval. And he, I mean, just give a little background, just in terms of how he kind of influenced your ideology, maybe a little bit, or. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, he wrote the book "Cracking the Metabolic Code" and then "Blood Never Lies." Uh, um, I worked with him as a functional medicine, uh, fun my functional medicine doctor that, um, but he's multiple degrees, but just, I mean, it, it's like, a Google, like walking around, like there's, I would come in intentionally every couple months I would meet with him and try to stump him with something based off of something and build it up. And there was never a moment where he wasn't extremely, uh, locked in and dialed in with his answer. It's just, you know, impressive level of knowledge and information. Um, and you know, just personally it made a huge uh, impact on me in terms of like, man, that's the guy was incredibly intelligent. Um, and, and, you know, I've been around mathematicians and, you know, high level people and physicists and whatnot. Like I've yet to meet someone who has as much understanding and comprehension as he did in his domain. That's cool. That's cool. What are you currently reading? Um, I kind of read a bunch of books simultaneously. Uh, Right now, I'm reading Biophoton Technology and Energy and Vitality Diagnostics, uh, Fields of Cell, um, and then, oh, what's the name of the astronaut books? I, I'm awful with book titles and authors. I just look, I just look for the information. Um, with those three books, some astronaut book, like How to Be an Astronaut, something like that. Hold on, I can tell you. Some are audible. 
I'm, I'm so bad with authors' names. Um, an astronaut's guide, astronaut's guide to life on Earth. Like book titles, like it's it's all about the information, not necessarily about the title. So like when people ask me what's oh, a good book, I don't know, whatever you want to read. Like yeah, 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 usually I usually post it on Instagram. I hate that. I personally, Adam, I hate that question because um, I feel like most coaches post their stuff enough of like, hey, I'm reading this. Um, not saying that like this question, but when a coach, like a young coach, asked me that, like. It kind of makes me feel skeptical of like, oh, this is a leading question. Like, there's going to be a follow up ask here, um, you know. So I'm like, right. I'm guarded a little bit like that. Like this, like, oh, what's the big ask here? Like, it's usually a nice lead up, thinking or appeasing what you what you want to talk about, and then on the back end, it goes into this dynamic of like, oh, by the way, this. And then the other side of it is, I generally read things. I don't. I hate leadership books. I mean, I can't stand John Gordon. I can't stand things that are inherently obvious that if I can read the title and I know the whole premise of the book and it's just two to 300 pages of fluff about supporting that title, it drives me nuts. And I find coaches that read that and I have a lot of them that I respect and admire and I'm sorry if I'm insulting you, but who read these books that are so obvious that the title of the book gives a whole pretense whatsoever. And they're basically just, productive procrastination you're just reading stuff that you already understood that you didn't really make any market difference but i read books that are really technical and really challenging and when oh what's it about or hey do you have any insights of them like i don't like the learning process for me is really slow and it's really challenging and like i got that from math and then like, i apply that everywhere else like i don't read books that i already understand or know the answer to like i read books that i have like no idea what the pretense and construct is and it's frustrating and it's challenging. So like getting the book question to me is like high anxious, like, of like, Oh man, like, can you walk me through that? Like, no, I can't. Absolutely not. I'm months, if not years away from really understanding this. And like that process to me, it's like, uh, and I just know it leads into this next level. Like, Oh, you're reading uh energy bus. Cool. Like, so just be nice to people and not bring any, any people's energy down. Like, did you need to read a whole book about that? Oh, the slight edge. Just do a little bit more every day. Great. Like, that's awesome, man. Like you read a very obvious book and you wasted your time, but you sit there and say that you're reading and I'm over here straining and struggling and I don't want to compare or contrast, but I get this like high anxiety about this. And I mean, I think, I think as a whole, most people are, most people are going to do things to improve their, their ability in that. I just like training, like, life like coaching like taking the big like proverbial leap and going into the great unknown and understanding that learning and growing is is painful and uncomfortable like just get used to that man and read books that you don't understand or off of face value and like are going to really push you and like you know i just think that dynamic is like so far and beyond like that so the book thing is for me is a it's a trigger <laughs> like i just I know. I I'm just, like, oh, I'm God just dying it, because, you know, I'm not <laughs> offended because, you know, I actually agree with that just in terms of like, it's just kind of like, just do the work. But it's, it's funny because it's like, what's your favorite strength coach book? And you're like, yeah, an astronaut's guide. To life. Yeah, read them all. Yeah, read them all. Like, I, there's no one. I mean, I don't know. Like, I just find that whole dynamic is like, it's such an interesting thing about our field. Uh, and it's, it's a great conversation starter. It's also a great, like, validator of something but it's also too of like hey i admire that person i associate the books that they read with the skill set that they have uh, but on the other end it's it's specific to where i'm at personally you know and like the books well, i read the in my 20s 
you know, like it's just different. It's just a unique question in our field. And I don't think it's specific to anywhere else. Like, honestly. No, I agree. You know, that's the thing. I always tell people I'm trying, not me, but like, if you're trying to read a book, it should be to solve a problem that you don't have the answer to. Yeah, like, for sure. Like if I'm in our business and I'm like, wait, okay, our business, like let's say years ago, it's like our business has no systems. It's like, okay, I need to learn about systems. So then we were reading the E-Myth and it's like, that's how we systemize. We're good. It's like, all right, what's next? Okay, we have this hole. What's the solution to that hole? Not just mm-hmm. reading for the sake of reading. Yeah, I mean like yeah. you could ring Atomic Habits to your blue in the face, Atomic, whatever it is, Atomic Habits yeah. to your blue in the face. And it's like, dude, during those whole months, you could have just built all the habits. Yeah, oh my God, yeah. Like, oh my God, I, I just, and I think there's a dynamic in this our industry more so than others is this you know validation based off of what you think other people are and social media is a huge part of this and i think sure. we've improved our brand recognition as a whole through social media and ourselves and the working with athletes and then the and i'm i do this as well so i'm not hopefully coming off as critical but like hey i'm, I'm reading this and hopefully it, it helps to answer the questions that i know are coming but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you need to read as well. And you don't need to feel less than because I'm reading that. For sure. You know, just a, it's a station in, in my life and, and it's where I'm focused on. Like it's just, I'm looking big into cellular biology and cellular physiology at this point in my life. Last year was physics. Like the year before was systems. Like the year before that was some new business owners. So it was a lot of business books. And it was like these dynamics as we look through where we're at personally, like they're not specific to really anyone. Like no. just, and you don't need to read this stuff. Like you're not going to be a bad coach if you don't read the things that we're reading individually, you know, but you, well, you will be a bad coach if you don't look at a needs analysis and, and where you're at from a deficiency standpoint and try to solve those problems with certain resources of books and certifications and education. For sure. You know, so again, I just appreciate you coming, appreciate you coming on here. You know, I think a lot of insight in a small amount of time. I know we could have gone for a little bit here, but where can people find you? What do you got going on? And, and why don't you just share that with us? Uh, so Allegiant Gym is our gym. We're based out of Los Angeles, allegiantgym.com. Uh, we we write series of blogs on all of our training blocks. So, you know, in terms of the question you, you asked about what we're doing training-wise, like we're not keeping secrets, but, you know, you can get a little bit more insight in terms of why we structure it the way we do there. Obviously, our social media, Allegiant Gym, uh, Instagram, my personal social media, Coach Tim Karen. And then I actually have um, a website called PH Podcast that has a podcast link to it. Yep. Uh, for this specific question of, hey, where can I go to learn more from you? It's that. And you know, where I'm looking at with Allegiant, it's a commercialized fitness option for general populations. What the big thing is, success breeds people who are interested in what you're doing, which is flattering and humbling and all that. But it does create this setup where it, it can directly distract from hopefully what we're trying to build out with Allegiant is this high-end group-based strength training model that's a nationwide brand to a solid off area for coaches education. I really don't have an interest in joining our gym, but want to kind of learn some insight for that. And that's why I created PH Podcast was to kind of silo that off and to funnel coaches who want more insight into the way I think about things there. So uh, head over to that. I have modules. I got over uh, about 50 modules tied in There's a lot I do podcasts. That. Yeah, I do about, I do podcasts for each of them. Um, Hopefully that it gives us like very well-rounded learning style of, you know, auditory and visual and, you know, giving in practical principles and then some sort of example from a case study and then interviewing with other like strength conditioning performance specialists and 
give this very holistic view to training and whatnot. So that area is allegiantgym.com or phpodcast.com and all the corresponding social and all the other information off of that. Yeah, for sure. And we'll link that all below. Hey, man, I really appreciate your time coming on. You shared a lot of good stuff. I know you have more to see, so we'll definitely have you back on. But thanks again. Awesome, man. Thanks, Adam.